Back to Luke chapter 17 today. If you have a Bible with you, please find your way to Luke chapter 17 and feel free to swipe your way, flip your way, whatever that looks like for you. We just enjoy the opportunity to dig into God's Word together. And today I'm going to share a message that I've titled, How to Miss the Kingdom of God, which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. We really don't want anyone to do that, but the reality is what Jesus draws out for us in the passage we're going to look at today shows that some individuals had that opportunity because they were looking to the wrong things when it came to his kingdom. Just to kind of collect our thoughts around this topic, earlier this week I was driving our four-year-old son Caleb to his preschool when he decided he was going to reveal to me a few details about his future plans from the booster seat he was riding in the back seat. Well, apparently that boy of mine already is a little bit predisposed against Valentine's Day because he said to me, when I grow up, I'm not going to get married and I'm not going to have any kids. And then he used a word which is probably a little bigger than what he understands. And he said, I'm just going to have me and my loneliness and my work. (laughs) Little Mr. Caleb's plan for work, by the way, is that he's going to be an astronaut Which, you know, it's probably going to be a pretty involved sort of thing. Tough to take your mate up into a spaceship. I can kind of see where he's going with that, you know. But it's funny sometimes to hear what kids dream about doing when they grow up, is it not? Some of us are still trying to figure all of that out ourselves, even as adults. So the planning for this sort of thing can certainly be tough. I can remember when I was in elementary school back in the early 90s, I used to play baseball for the Pine Hall Pirates, and I used to collect baseball cards during that time, and so I decided at that time that I was going to be a major league baseball player when I grew up. In case you didn't notice, I missed the mark a little bit, but in the presentation, as you see today, I've I've included a a few pieces uh, of, of kind of evidence of that here. So, so you see the couple of pictures of me there in my Pine Hall Pirate days, but you also see a little piece of art that I put together. This was a baseball card that I made for myself in that day. This is my vision in the 90s of my future self, and of course I was planning on playing for the Oakland A's. They, in that day, had the Bash Brothers of Jose Canseco and Bart McGuire. They also had... Uh, the, the king of stolen bases and Ricky Henderson. So I kind of imagined myself as an outfielder for the Oakland A's. My mother was kind enough to preserve this memory for me and, and pass it along to me uh, in a book of photos that she gave to me not long after Amy and I got married. But what did not survive the years was what had been taped on the back, which is kind of, kind of the backside of this baseball card, where I had, you know, the statistics. You guys who know me you know I'm a detail-oriented guy, right? So as a kid in, in the 90s, I put together the statistics, you know, my stats, my stat sheet for what you would expect to see on the back of a baseball card. And I remember kind of being confused, you know, why is it that there's always a decimal place in front of individuals' batting averages? I mean, Goodness, why can't somebody just step up and hit the ball every time? And so on the back of my baseball card, I had my batting percentages 1,000, all right? I mean, I was planning for perfection. I I can't remember the exact numbers of home runs and and RBIs, but I would tell you that those numbers were were pretty through the roof, too, because I had in my mind a plan that 
I was going to be a pretty excellent baseball player. Well, apparently I was a little bit overzealous when it came to my plans for professional baseball. And also in my expectations of how well I would be able to grow facial hair. I mean, look at the mustache on that guy. The sad reality, though, is that I've never been much of an athlete, especially when it came to the sport of baseball. In fact, one of those years, as I was playing for the Pirates, um, you know, we're playing there in Pine Hall, and the sheriff at the time was Mike Joyce, who was a Pine Hall native. His son, Mikey Joyce, was playing baseball in some sort of professional capacity. I believe it was in the minor leagues, but, uh, you know, our coach at the time, I think it was Jason Duncan. I can't remember all the exact details, but Jason Duncan usually had this kind of spirit for, for finding creative things to do. He was a teacher there at the school and worked through the NASA program and the TV program. But anyhow, uh, whoever it was worked out an arrangement where Mikey Joyce, this professional baseball player, would come and would throw a few pitches at our practice so that the little leaguers could say, we've hit a pitch that was thrown by a pro. Well, that worked out pretty good. You know, we all lined up until this one kid came up to the plate and could not hit the ball to save his life. And that kid was yours truly. And so I remember, like, Mikey started out. He started out on the pitcher's mound, and he, and he threw the ball a few times. And when he realized, I guess, how far I was missing with my swing, he stepped a little closer. And, you know, he tried to do a little underhanded lob. I mean... Don't know how well that's going to go later on. I hit an underhanded lob from a professional baseball player. But even then, with my great state of athletics, I didn't hit the ball. And so uh, it turns out that I am quite an expert in missing it, okay? So I feel like I'm really well equipped to share this sort of message on how to miss the kingdom of God. Because really, that's an expertise that stuck with me into my Life as an individual who would be a child of God as well. The spiritual avenue of my life is an area where I spend much of my life missing it, missing the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. For much of my life, I thought that I was a Christian. I thought that I was saved. I thought that I was knocking it out of the park for Jesus. But the reality was I was totally missing it in some of the ways that the individuals that we're going to encounter in today's passage were totally missing it. And so today I want to leverage my expertise as a seasoned expert in how to miss it as we dive into this passage. Because today we're going to encounter some of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Now the Jews, the promised people of God, who had been set aside to be his kind of chosen people, his holy nation of priests, this kingdom of priests. The Jews had been promised a kingdom one day. Now, they'd had a kingdom in the past, but that had all kind of gone away. They'd gone into dispersion. They'd gone into captivity. And yet they had this promise from God that ultimately one day this descendant of David, descendant of one of the greatest kid, kings that they'd ever had, would establish an eternal rule, a kingdom not built by human hands, a kingdom of righteousness and peace for the Jews who would then be regathered into their promised land, a kingdom that would have as its capital city, that holy city of Jerusalem. A kingdom that would be universal 
and a kingdom that would last forever. And during the times of oppressive Roman rule in which individuals who we're going to encounter in the passage today lived, they were all the more eager for that kingdom to begin. They were ready for their Messiah. They were ready for their anointed king. They were ready for the descendant of David who would rule over them and who would usher in the great kingdom promise. So with many strong feet, uh, figures who kind of appeared on history, on the historical stage, they would ask the question, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who's here to rescue us? Could this be the one who's here to lead us into this physical manifestation of heavenly rule on earth? That's a question they'd ask about John the Baptist back in Luke chapter 3 where we saw people in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, Luke reveals in Luke 3, 15. And it's now a question that the people are wrestling with as they encounter Jesus here in their midst and they think about the kingdom promises and whether or not he's the one who's here to fill those promises. The only problem for these people was that when the king came many of them missed him they thought they would be batting a thousand they thought they would certainly be in on his kingdom promises but now that he was here many of them were striking out at the plate they were missing their king they were missing god's intentions for him they were so consumed with identifying the king and witnessing the signs of the kingdom's arrival and plotting out the timing of kingdom events, and yet they totally missed it when the very king stood in their midst. And in Luke 17, verses 20 to 36, Jesus takes a time out as he's on his way to Jerusalem to teach the experts in biblical prophecy. And to teach those who had decided to follow him. A few lessons about the coming of the kingdom of God. So let's turn there now to catch a few lessons on how to miss the kingdom of God. Not because that's what we want to do. But because we want to heed the warnings from Jesus on how not to do that very thing. So if you're able, I'd ask that you would stand together with us. That we might honor the reading of God's word. Starting in Luke 17 verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So as we kind of dig into this passage today, I want to show you five ways that Jesus warns you might miss the kingdom of God in what he's teaching us here. The first way is this. Wait for a sign. I mean, if you want to miss the kingdom of God, wait for a sign. That's what the Jews were looking for. How do we know that? Well, when the religious experts, when those who were so steeped in the Old Testament law, when those who knew everything about what God had revealed come to Jesus and they ask him, a question in verse 20 it's a question which ultimately jesus senses they're asking because they want to know kind of when and where to expect the visible signs of this kingdom they want to know when the kingdom of god was coming and that's a good question for us to ask but they were looking for the answer in the wrong place you see first century jews didn't realize that the Messiah would come in two phases instead of one phase. That is, they were looking for a physical millennial kingdom that would begin as soon as the Messiah arrived. What they didn't realize is that Jesus came firstly to pay the penalty of sinners as the suffering servant before he would later come to establish this physical kingdom over the earth and first jesus had this important spiritual work to do but they weren't expecting that they were expecting political rule they were expecting things to go in such a fashion that a king would set up and would command all the nations here in a physical sort of way and that will happen jesus is coming again he will establish a physical kingdom But Jesus had an important work to do first, and so he turns their attention away from the physical things that they could observe. That is, he tells them that the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. If you're going to enter the kingdom, it's not going to be through a door that you visibly see with your eyes. You don't have to look around to find the way into the kingdom of heaven. You shouldn't wait for someone to point it out to you and say, look, there it is. Or, hey, hey, here, right here, this is it. Why, Jesus says, because, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. That was his lesson for the Pharisees. 
in this moment. That's an interesting sort of phrase. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Well, how could that be? Well, there are a couple of observations to note here. First of all, if we pan out a little bit, we'll see ultimately that Jesus, the Messiah, is in the midst of the people who are longing for this kingdom. He was in their very midst as the one who had come to be the rescuer, the one who had come to be the anointed one, the one who had come to be the king. And Jesus is the way to enter the kingdom. The the Bible is so clear on that. Jesus so clearly revealed, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the door. Faith in him is the way in which we enter into the kingdom. We yield our lives to him. We grant him dominion over our own hearts when we come to him by faith. And, and you know, ultimately, what is a kingdom? I mean, you think about what, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is precisely that domain over which the king reigns. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's telling these Pharisees, he's telling these ones who are looking for signs, if they want to enter his kingdom, They must give him dominion over their lives. They must receive him as Lord. They must yield their lives to him. But Jesus knew that these Jews were not looking for a spiritual kingdom. They weren't looking for a savior because in their minds they didn't need to be saved. So when when Jesus called for them to be saved, they got offended. They got upset. They wanted the kingdom, but they didn't want to yield their lives to the king. And yet here was the king, the very king that they were longing for, in their midst, calling for them to appropriate him as Lord and Savior. They wanted a king who could deal with oppressive nations, but not with the oppressive sin that separated them from Almighty God in his holiness. And friends, you can't have the eternal kingdom without first appropriating the eternal king and being reconciled to God through what Christ has done. And so here they are with the king who's, who's ultimately been about three years ministering in their very presence and still they don't recognize him. Still they don't realize what he's come to accomplish because they wanted a political kingdom. They didn't want a spiritual one. And look, Jesus isn't saying that a physical kingdom isn't coming. One day he will come again. You can take that to the bank, friends. And when he does, he will be the conquering political king. He will rapture the church and he will defeat his foes. But if you have not entered the kingdom of God spiritually by that point, it will make no difference to you the pharisees were looking for something that would not ultimately be a blessing for them you see if they died in their current state shutting off jesus refusing to yield their lives to him refusing to acknowledge their sins and repent and be forgiven to find eternal life if they died in that state there would be no benefit for them when the physical kingdom came and so jesus compelled them to stop looking for a sign so that they might enter the kingdom now and look the same is true for any of us it will make no difference how much we know about the signs of the times 
or, or if we recognize those signs, if, if in fact we have not entered the kingdom of God by trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Because if you die without Christ, I don't care how much knowledge you have in your head. If you have not yielded your life to Him, when He calls forth His own, you will not be resurrected in the rapture. Therefore, you will not be around with Christ to come with him as he ushers in this millennial kingdom. You will not participate in the first resurrection. You'll only participate in the section, second that is portrayed in Revelation chapter 20. The first is the rapture, the calling forth of Christ's own. The second is the great white throne, judgment of condemnation. Now, does... Does that mean that there will be no observable signs preceding Christ's return to initiate his millennial kingdom? No, it doesn't mean that at all. The Bible makes it clear that there will be signs preceding Christ's second coming. Namely, the Antichrist will appear. The temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And an action described biblically as an abomination of desolation will occur. These signs will precede the coming of Christ in judgment as he comes to rule over the nations in a physical, political kingdom here on earth. But these are not what initiates Christ's kingdom. Christ has already initiated that kingdom. He has initiated that kingdom by coming and preaching the good news of the kingdom. The same good news that we proclaim as a church week in and week out that Christ has come to redeem broken sinners like me and like you to himself. And this kingdom consists of those who have yielded themselves to the king. So if you're waiting for a sign to enter God's kingdom, then wait no more. All the sign that is needed has been given. The sign of Jonah has been rendered for us and that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has come. He has worked miracles that conquer death and divide history in two. So don't get caught up looking for some new sign. As if God's going to reveal to you in some special way that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Nothing could be more special than what he's already done. And if you wait for that sign, it will be too late for you. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so I compel you, trust in the Savior now. Why? Because you can find the kingdom now. You can yield your heart to the king now. And the first way Jesus warns that you might miss the kingdom of God is if you get caught up waiting for a sign. Here's the second one. Chase the wild goose. Jesus turns his attention to the disciples in verse 22. That's a group that would include the 12, of course, that he called to this intense ministry preparation as they followed him and shared life with him. But that would also include anyone who ultimately had committed themselves to following him. A disciple is really just a follower. And there were many individuals who were following Jesus in this day. Crowds surrounded him. And not all of them were saved. Some of them were only following him so that they might see if he would perform miracles. Others were trying to see if he was a worthy rabbi. They thought 
well of his teachings, but did not yield their lives to him. Still, there were some who had appropriated him as Savior and Lord. All this group is mixed in together in this group, known as the disciples following Jesus. And he turns his attention to them and to this group in verse 22. Jesus makes it clear that his first coming is not all that there is. He says, the days will come when you will no longer see one of the days of the Son of Man. Or, you know, you, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will no longer see it. That is, this day's coming when they want to see Jesus. They want to see his visible, physical manifestation, but they will not be able to in that day. That's the day in which we live. I mean, how many of us would love to see our Savior? How many of us would love to meet him face to face? How many of us desire to see his coming we are in this day now. And if Christ was here at this time to set up an eternal kingdom in the day when he's speaking to these Pharisees and the day when he's speaking to these disciples, then that coming day that Jesus talks about couldn't happen. He's making it clear in these verses that he's going away from his disciples for a time before he returns for this permanent, physical sort of kingdom that will visibly reign here on the earth. But he wants them to know that he isn't playing a game of hide-and-seek with them. He isn't going to come back in some sort of obscure hiding way which causes them to only have certain numbers of individuals who are in the know that Christ has come back. As only certain people are going to kind of be able to be in the know, in the space, in the place, knowing where Christ is coming again. And this truth is a truth that ought to guard every Christian against any number of wackos who come and who either claim that they know the secret to entering the kingdom or who claim that they themselves are Jesus come back to earth. That is, this should be the truth that guards Christians against the Jonestowns and the Charles Mansons of this world. Why? Because if someone tries to draw you away saying, look here or look there, Jesus says here in verse 23, do not go away. And do not run after them. He's telling us that we'll never have to go on a wild goose chase to see the physical manifestation of his kingdom when it comes. A number of years ago, a retired NASA engineer named Edgar C. Wisenant wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. The book, which he self-published, Place the expected date of the rapture between September the 11th and September the 13th of 1988. That book, by the way, became a massive bestseller. By the end of that year, more than four and a half million copies of the book had been sold. And, and Wisenant was so certain that he had the date right that he said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say to every preacher in town, I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 1988. Well, it turns out that Wisenant and I were striking out around the same time, all right? Because just as I was striking out with Mikey Joyce's pitches, he tried to publish further volumes when things did not pan out in 1988. But it is a little surprise that his later books predicting the rapture in 1989 and then 1993 and 1994 did not sell quite as well as his first volume in 1988. No. Instead, Jesus 
shows us here just like lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines into the other part of the sky so it will be when the son of man returns in his day what is that day it's the day of his coming the day when he comes to establish his physical kingdom here on earth and so we should note that when lightning flashes what does it do it fills up the entire sky In the same way, when Jesus comes, the whole world will see his kingdom as it comes. As lightning strikes suddenly, so too Jesus will return suddenly. And when King Jesus returns in splendor, his arrival will not be subtle. It will be obvious. His coming will not be slow. It will be quick. His return will not be local. It will be global. Elsewhere in Matthew 24, Jesus taught that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. All the tribes of the earth will see Him coming. All men will behold His glory. And soon in our journey through Jesus' life, here in His first coming, as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, we'll enter into Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just a week before he would be crucified in that holy city. And as we enter into that passage, we're going to see that the people were so confused. They were expecting a physical kingdom that would be manifested right away. And so they shouted out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in Luke 19.37. They thought this was his coronation. This was the moment when the kingdom was starting out and when they realized that this was not the time of his coronation. They called for his crucifixion. That was no shocker for Jesus, though. That was the reason why he had come. And he wanted his disciples to know that was what he was going to do. They had no no need to go on a wild goose chase after his crucifixion. So he reminded them again of his upcoming appointment with the cross in verse 25, saying, First, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, this generation being the generation of the Jews, the generation of his people. Friends, we take hope to know that Christ didn't lose his kingdom at the cause of Calvary. He won the cause of his kingdom at Calvary. When Christ went to the cross bearing the sins of all mankind, it was so that you and I would have an opportunity to enter into this kingdom. Jesus didn't go blindly into this effort. It wasn't a surprise for him when he faced the cross. No, this was his very mission. He came so that you might be saved. He came so that you might receive God's grace He came so that you don't have to die the death of condemnation. He died it in your place. The righteous for the unrighteous so that you might be restored to God. And look, Jesus says no man knows the hour of the day. It's interesting to think, like, if we could know the hour of the day, how how would we respond? I think we'd live our lives however we please, and then we'd plead for His grace right before the hour, right before the day came around. And friends, that's not kingdom living. 
Let me draw a parallel here. There are some husbands who invest in their relationships with their wives only a couple of times a year. Their anniversary and then Valentine's Day, which is coming up soon. In case you didn't know, guys, here's your public service announcement. And when those two days roll around, the the anniversary or Valentine's Day, they come home from work, they take their wives out to dinner, they get her a special gift, they make a big to-do about that special day. But that's it. Their display of affection goes no further than that. They have no regular dinners, they have no dating, no romance outside of those events. And what that husband is practically saying is, I love you and I'll see you again next year. That can be a pretty empty way of showing love. Most women would gladly trade those annual events with a consistent 365 days of faithful and consistent and present love, even if it only meant that their husbands were regularly going out with them for fast food or to the local park. Because faithful and consistent love is much stronger than big event love. And yet a lot of Christians live their lives with Christ in big event love mode. That is, they look back to the big event when they first decided they wanted to be saved, and they say, that's my testimony. That's when I declared my love for Jesus. But their lives since that time look nothing like the love that he caused us to live out. They don't spend any time communicating with him. They go about their busy lives as though he doesn't matter. And we may even wonder, if he were to come for them, would they be expecting him? Would they even recognize him? And I just want to ask you, friend, how is your relationship with the Lord? Is it a close daily relationship? Are you regularly in communication with Him? Are you looking for Him? Are you expecting Him? Are you showing love to Him by the way you live day in, day out? Or are you only appointing to some event in the past? Look, rather than looking for and preparing for a single day, we should live our lives as Christians in a perpetual state of readiness. We should always be looking. We should always be preparing because Jesus could return at any moment like lightning flashing across the sky. And so we should be ready, my friends, for his return. Because the second way Jesus warns you, you might miss the kingdom of God is by chasing the wild goose. Here's the third. Go with the flow. Just go with the flow. That's what people were doing in Noah's day. That's what they were doing in Lot's day as well. In both instances, Jesus shows us in verses 27 and 28 that they were eating and they were drinking. In Noah's day, they were marrying and being given in marriage. In Lot's day, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. They were just going along with the flow. I mean, they were carrying out everyday life. But the problem was they were wicked. The problem was they had violated God's will and His design. They had accumulated His wrath. In Noah's day, it was a violation that manifested itself in in the evil intent of the thoughts of man's heart, which was on evil continually, according to Genesis 6, 5. And in Noah's day, the earth was filled with violence, according to Genesis 6, 11. 
In Lot's day, on the other hand, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot lived, were, were carrying out a sin that was exceedingly grave, such that God sent two angels to go and to investigate what was happening in that place. And these two male angels, apporting, uh, appearing in the form of a man, went to Lot's house, and those individuals of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah gathered around trying to break the doors down so that they might have sexual relations with these men. An act we now know as sodomy for that very reason. It's the city of Sodom. And the evil in that place was so great The judgment came. The problem of these cities was their evil. But even beyond that, the problem was that they weren't listening to the preachers of their day. And so they faced judgment. In Noah's day, it was through the flood. In Lot's day, it was through fire and brimstone, which was sent down to destroy their cities. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Who were the preachers here? What preachers are you talking about in Noah's day? What preachers were there in Lot's day? Well, in Noah's day, God had given the world ample warning that judgment was coming and that men must repent of their wickedness. In fact, in, in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah was described as a preacher of righteousness as he was building an ark for almost 100 years. These people had plenty of time to hear his message of righteousness, but no one had ears to hear. 1 Peter 3.30 reveals the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Likewise, in Lot's day, Lot pled with his fellow countrymen saying, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly in Genesis 19.7. But they wouldn't listen. In both instances, people were just going with the flow. And Jesus says in verse 30, it will be the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And really, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, if we look to the world around us, it seems as though individuals in masses are turning away from our God. So few are hearing the message of righteousness. One man asked another on the street, Do you know what the two biggest problems in the world are today? And that man said, I don't know and I don't care. He said, you're right, you got them both. The alternative for us is that we must hear the preaching of the gospel. We must hear the messengers of righteousness while there is still time. For those who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, The day of our Lord, the day of his second coming will be a time of joy. It will be a time of celebration. It will be a time of worship as we say our king has come to rule over us. For those who've rejected him, for those who refuse to hear the message that he preaches of righteousness, it will be a time of destruction. It will be a time of of eye-opening to the reality that forever your life will have no purpose other than to suffer eternal punishment and banishment from the presence of the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so the choice is yours. You can either receive Jesus or reject Jesus. But listen, the consequences of your choice are not your choice. God has designed the consequences of that choice. 
And he has come in the person of Christ to convey those consequences to you. He has come to grant his patience to you that you might have time, that you might be able to respond, that you might have grace and wisdom in this moment to come to know of his salvation. And it's interesting to note that in both of these instances that Jesus mentions, there was a way of salvation. God provided a way for individuals to be saved. Before the flood, Noah was taken into the ark. Before the fire and the brimstone, Lot and his daughters were taken to safety on a mountain. And you should know this, friends. Before the unfolding of judgment, God will rescue his own. This is important as we think about the kind of timing of Christ's second coming. Because what Paul reveals in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not a message that shows us any sign of terror in the people of God. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, how could that happen? How could those who fall asleep in Jesus come with Christ when he comes again? He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Look, friends, there's no hint of judgment in this message that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's no hint of judgment in what God, through his servant, promises to us when we feel unrest about the end of times before they come. Because for those who are in Christ, this is a promise that we will not be part of that great judgment. This is a promise that he will call his own to himself before that judgment comes. And so I ask you, do you want to escape his judgment? Come to Christ. Don't just go with the flow. Hear the message of righteousness. And the third way that Jesus warns you, you might miss the kingdom of God, is by going with the flow. Here's the fourth. Cling to your things. I mean, that's what Lot's wife did. The angels of God told Lot and his family not to look back as they were escaping this destructive judgment of the Lord. But Lot's wife couldn't help but to look back to the former life. She couldn't help but to to yield her heart in love to the things which she had fled away from. And her disobedience was the outward manifestation of what was ultimately an inward unbelief that God had what was best in store for her in his commands to her. Jesus points us to her in verse 32 as an illustration of how our own hearts must be settled to pursue him. As he reveals in verse 31. He says, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Now, these are instructions, again, in the time of judgment. These are when Christ physically comes to establish his kingdom on earth. When when ultimately the day of the Lord comes, this time of judgment, this time of great tribulation. He's saying, look, 
in that day, don't turn back. Like, that's an important instruction if you're not going to receive Christ now, if by some chance you should happen to survive the great calamities that come. Why? Because whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, there's some important instruction here for those of us who are Christians in evaluating where we are in our walk with Christianity. Like, if we're only that big event, that only, only that big ticket sort of Christianity that looks back to that, uh, that certain event and has never really kind of lived for Christ since then, like we've constantly been in our own state of staying in Sodom, constantly in our state of looking back to the life that we had such that nothing's really changed in who we are. This is a warning for us. And the point here is this. When Jesus comes on that day, his coming will disclose where people's hearts really are. This is a warning not to cling to the stuff of the world. This is a warning to people to make sure that you put value in the things which deserve true value. And it would normally be reasonable to say that that if there was like some sort of hurricane coming to town, you should go down and get your stuff and take it out to safety. Or if there was a fire that was sweeping your way and and you're out in a field, you run to your house, you get the things that are precious and you save them. But friends, that only makes sense because those things might survive a hurricane. And those things might survive a fire. But those things will not survive the coming judgment of God. There's something so much greater that we need to be focused upon. Jesus describes those who, like Lot's wife, take a few steps toward God. I mean, maybe they pray a prayer that accepts Jesus into their heart, so to speak. Or maybe they make a profession saying that I'm a Christian, and yet they move slowly away from Sodom. And as they do so, they sense the loss. They sense the cost of what they've left behind. And they become like those who are in the parable that Jesus gave us of the seed that fell on rocky soil and withered away because it had no root. Or like the seed that fell among the thorns and was choked, according to Luke chapter 8. And Luke's, I mean, mean, Lot's wife, Lot's wife in this parallel that we have in Genesis 19, she was destroyed on the brink of safety. She came as close as she could be, but she could not let go of the world. She belonged to Sodom. Her stuff was there. Her heart was there. She looked back longingly and was destroyed with Sodom. She was ultimately a Sodomite. Her heart was there because she loved her sin. And she couldn't forsake the things that she loved. Where are you, friends? Are you willing to walk away from the Sodom in your life? Are you willing to walk away from the life there once was, are you willing to truly turn and truly pursue the master of all? Like, is he really going to have dominion over your heart and your life? Because without a king, there is no kingdom. This is what Christ is calling us to acknowledge. There's something so much more than the stuff, okay? What you could run down and get can't compare with what he offers to you in Christ. And so I compel you to do what Christ over and over and over compels us to do in Luke's gospel. stated so clearly when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. That's the fifth way Jesus warns you might miss the kingdom of God is by clinging to your things. Here's the final way. Run with the right crowd. I mean, some individuals have this sort of expectation that says if I run with the right crowd, if I'm in church, if I'm married to a good Christian, then I'm going to be okay. But that's so far from the truth. Look at what Jesus says in verses 35 and 36 here. He says there will be two women grinding at the same place. That is, they're working together. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. He even says, back in verse 34, on that night there will be two in one bed. That, that is, they're sharing the house together. They're sharing the bed together. One will be taken and the other will be left. And so he's showing, look, it's not your associations. It's not the good relationships with people who are in a right standing that's going to make a difference for you. And, and I'll tell you, friends, this is where things in my own history, what, just one of the ways out of these five ways that I was totally missing the kingdom. I, I mean, I thought as long as I was a part of the church, you know, as long as I was a part of the good social club and tried to say the right things and not cuss and not do that sort of thing, hey, man, I must be in a good standing with the Lord. Look, I'm hanging around God's people. I'm with them every Sunday. God, surely you're going to honor me at the coming of your kingdom. I praise God that coming didn't come then because I, would not have been among the redeemed in that day. The meaning of these expressions is clear and plain. The day of Christ's second coming shall be the day when good and evil, converted and unconverted, shall be divided and divided distinctly into two separate bodies. The visible church will no longer be a mixed body with the sheep and the goats. The wheat and the tares will no longer grow side by side. The angels will come forth and they will gather the godly and they will be rewarded. But they will leave the wicked behind to be punished. And it will matter nothing that people have worked together. It will not matter that people have slept together. It will not matter that they've lived together for years. They will be dealt with at last according to how they have responded to God's rescuing king. And those members of the family who have loved Christ will be taken up into heaven and those who have loved the world will be cast down into hell. And they will be separated forevermore. And Christ doesn't, he doesn't reveal these things to us so, so that we might just be covered up in the woe of thinking of those moments. He offers these truths to us so that we might realize that He's come to rescue us from that. He's come to redeem us from that. And in this passage, it's not real clear. Bible scholars debate who's taken, who's left. Is this talking about the rapture? Is this talking about the second coming and, and this great day of wrath? There's considerable disagreement among commentators as to who constitutes each one of these groups. But what is clear? The most important point is not so much the identity of who's taken and who's left, but the fact that Jesus will return and bring about a moment of division in relationships which last for eternity. And it won't matter that your granddaddy planted a church. It won't matter that your mama was always a faithful woman who read the Bible to you every night. What will matter is whether or not the king has dominion 
over your heart and your life. And the disciples want to know, where is this going to happen? Well, Jesus gives an interesting answer there in verse 37. They say, where, Lord? He said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So apparently the body will be in Walnut Cove. Okay, I've just seen a lot of vultures over there. I don't know if you've all seen the vultures in Walnut Cove, but kind of humorous to me. Vultures are scavengers. Vultures gather where there's death. Actually, we had a, an incident a few weeks back where my dad and I were moving some furniture, and we drove down the road, and we noticed there were a couple of vultures just kind of hanging out on the tree next to the pond where we live. And then there were a couple of dogs that were over on the side of the road, too, and it's just odd to have a couple of dogs hanging out here and a couple of vultures hanging out in the tree here. So we stopped. My dad said, I bet there's something dead around here. We parked, and we went out to look, and sure enough, he went and he found a a deer that had been mangled kind of in half uh, as it had been hit on the road. Where the vultures are gathered, there will the carcass be. Christ is saying that ultimately this judgment will happen wherever there is death. And where is there death? Death is nothing more than a symbol of separation. Death occurs where individuals do not know Christ. And so while they wanted to know where, like, can I steer clear of this town? Can I steer clear of this place? The reality Jesus is teaching them is there's no place you're going to escape this coming wrath. Because those vultures will go wherever the death may be. And you will not escape unless the king is your king. And so what's the right alternative here? It's not to go with the right crowd to be part of the right crowd, to be part of the ones who've yielded your life to Christ, to, to be part of those who've said to Jesus, will you be my Lord and be my Savior? And here's what you should know. If you're not ready for a physical kingdom, you're not going to be ready until you are settled into the spiritual kingdom. As John wrote, in 1 John 2, 28, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Friends, there's no need for you to shrink away. There's no need for you to be ashamed if you will but trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Are you ready for his coming? If not, friends... Now is the time. His grace is still for you. His message is still for you. His gospel still has every bit of power that you need to enter into this kingdom. And so I compel you, come to the king. Appropriate Christ as the Lord of your life. Turn away from your Sodom and go to him living a life that is pursuing him. And my friends, he will richly forgive. He will richly give life. We